Hey everybody, welcome to episode 78 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back, welcome aboard. On today's show, we will be speaking with Tiffany Nardico. She is an ex-fashionista living out of a van, traveling across the United States, photographing people in various roped environments on the surface of the earth and in the caves beneath the earth. So come with me to Griffith Manor Park in Glendale, California, and let's talk to Tiffany Nardico. Tiffany Nardico. I am an adventure photographer on the road, living full-time out of my van, or will be soon enough. I'm a simple person. So yes. let's start way back before you were an adventure photographer and how you got into that. Because if I recall correctly, and we've talked about this in the past, you were a very different kind of gal I was. just a few years ago, right? I was. I was a fashionista working at Forever 21 as a visual merchandiser, merchandising clothing, making people feel like they're pretty. You have to tell us what a visual merchandiser is because that, <laughs> that just sounds like yeah, some words I, I put together. I think the most common question I get is, what is a visual merchandiser? Basically, anything that has to do with how the product looks in store is what I did. I merchandised the clothing, outfitted it, styled it, did banner installation, inventory, that kind of stuff. So does that mean when people would see end caps or window displays, things of that nature, you Absolutely. would be involved in that? I would, right. everything that has to do visually within the store, I was involved with. So you're the person responsible so that when young girls walked by and then they said, oh, I wish I looked like that and then feel bad about themselves exactly. and then go into the store, you helped, you helped make that happen. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which is why I decided to change my direction, too. <laughs> All right. So at some point you decided to stop destroying women's concepts of their own bodies. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened from there? I went to school for photography, learned the trade, and eventually slowly stopped going to school and started going on the field with my camera and learning how to incorporate my camera into the environments, the mountains and cliffs and canyons and learning how to build a portfolio from there. So had you been interested in photography prior to that? Were you Absolutely. doing photography as a kid? <laughs> yeah, I've always had a camera on me growing up. Started with a Polaroid and then throughout high school it was always a point and shoot. It was always something that kind of was sitting in my mind and just kind of took a different visual path with the visual merchandising and realized that I wanted to go forth 100%. So I did. So when you entered school, did you do a two-year program, four-year program? Two-year program at Orange Coast College, the photography certificate program, which I still haven't technically finished on paper, but I have taken practice practically all the courses. But eventually, like I said, I, I just went out onto the field and started learning the stuff that you're not going to learn in classroom, like hanging from a cliff with your camera. Well, here's the interesting thing, because photography has changed so much in the last two decades that what photography classes would have taught people early on, the, the basics of composition and all those things, of course, are going to be the same, right? But yeah. the technology has shifted so much. Did they teach you about film or darkroom at all, or did they just throw you straight into digital and say, don't worry about that stuff. They give you the option 
if you want to learn film, you can take a film class. So that was my very first class and my favorite class. You could spend long hours in the dark room. <laughs> yeah, so they give you that option still. Keeping the art of the trade, you can still build off of that rudimentary uh, knowledge as well. So it's still there. So I'm old, right? So I did a little bit of photography in college, which would have been 20 years ago when it was pre-digital. The interesting thing was seeing the things I learned in those darkroom classes, they've become the, the verbiage and the shorthand for all your tools in Photoshop and various other things. So whenever I'm working, because I do a lot of design work, right? And I'm working, say, in Photoshop, and I look at those tools, the dodge tool and the burn tool and these things, they mean something to me that might seem really weird to someone coming straight in through digital and not getting why those tools have that name or they function the way that they do. It probably gave you a nice basis Absolutely. to kind of transfer to the digital Absolutely. realm, Absolutely, right? yeah. I think it's a good place to start from because you get to learn where it started. You get to appreciate the art of photography. You get to spend time on a photograph. There's some value that goes into a photograph when you sit there in a dark room and you dodge and you burn and you put hours and hours and hours into one single print versus taking a hundred different photos on your digital camera. So it's definitely something that I think every photographer should learn. Here's a sidetrack a little bit. So the spool that you have to feed the yeah. film onto <laughs> to put in the canister in the dark so that you can develop your film. It's a pain in the ass, isn't That's it? That's my favorite part. <laughs> I used to love sitting there. Well, because we would always have a classmate in there with us. I'd always invite someone to go in the dark room with me. So we'd sit there, try to figure out where the spool is in the dark and it was just it was so much fun <laughs> yeah for people that don't know what we're talking about when you roll up your your film so that it's back inside its canister so that it cannot be further exposed to sunlight you then take it into the dark you break it open You've got a wire spool that you have to thread it onto, but you have to be really careful so that the film doesn't touch itself because when you develop it, then that'll ruin those pictures that touch. Absolutely. And you have to do this in the dark. <laughs> that, and then you have to make sure that it doesn't spool on crooked. Right. Or else you have to redo it. Eventually, you'll figure it out, too, because you'll feel it, and you're like, ah. Dang it, I gotta start over. And it sucks because where you screw up, you ruin your photos. Like, you can't get uh, them back. I mean, it depends on how bad you screw it up. But yeah, you can screw it up pretty badly. How aggressive you are. But that, that was absolutely my favorite part about the dark room was, was wheeling it on the spool and then doing everything in the dark just by touching. I did one time open it with the red light on, and I was like, why can I still see it? Dang it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there a red light. There goes an entire yeah. roll. If you expose it to the red light, it can also screw up your roll. And we're going to talk about this later, but it's interesting that your favorite part of the dark room was the true dark room where you're feeding things onto a spool and just by hand figuring out what you're doing because you also, even though you didn't mention it, have gotten pretty involved in caving. And so it's very interesting that you would naturally be drawn to the dark and two separate activities. Yeah. So there's something about the dark that I feel at home, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so you decided to get out of fashion, to stop making people feel bad about themselves, to get into <laughs> photography. You got to learn about the the old process and then also the newer process. Mm -hmm. Something that I'm sure was interesting for you is most people in your class were probably not trying to get into adventure photography, which is what interested you, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I was the only one in my program who was interested in adventure photography. Most people are interested in portraits, commercial, food, weddings. So I think a lot of my teachers were very much inspired by the 
product that I was producing and or the photos I was producing. I, I did have a teacher tell me that she would never hang from a cliff with a camera. <laughs> they loved it when I came back from my trips and told them the stories of where I've been and the crazy places I've taken my camera and also encouraged that I had insurance as well. <laughs> tell us how that process came about because as you were saying you were into fashion but then at some point you started to get into these outdoor activities but also deeper into photography. Did these things happen simultaneously? Yeah, kind of about the same. They, they grew at the same time. So as I was going to school, I was doing a lot of hiking out in Zion and always wanting to do more. And I never really had that network, that connection. And then finally I met someone, Mark Fuji, who was able to train me in canyoneering. And we went out and did a bunch of canyons and learned the skill set of canyoneering and was introduced into the community shortly after that. And then it just grew from there. <laughs> if I remember correctly, you've told me in the past that you met him on the shuttle bus, right? I and met just him on the, the shuttle bus in Zion. <laughs> he was geared up in his wetsuit, ready to go do a canyon. And I asked him questions and told him that I was interested and... He was nice enough to teach me. And you were probably dressed in a dress from Forever 21 or something at the time? <laughs> Hiking around in a dress. <laughs> <laughs> so you started learning about canyoneering through Mark and through the other people that you met. And simultaneously, you're working on photography. So when you first got into the photography class, did you have any intention to do the adventure photography? Or did you go in thinking you were going to do portraiture or something different than that? I was thinking more along the lines of backpacking photography, of course, and didn't think that it would really grow to the point that it is now, which I'm excited about because that that was my dream. <laughs> That's where I wanted to take it. And I'm just lucky that I was able to make those connections at network. So an interesting thing about your class is your teachers can teach you a lot of tricks and techniques, right? So. Mm -hmm. All the people wanting to learn portraiture or to take portraits in a studio, they can say, okay, well, here are some recommended things to do. But it's a little different when you're deciding you want to do activities and photograph them that probably no one else in the class is doing. How did you go about getting those skills to know how to rig a rope system so that you can get climbing photography or something like that? Trial and error. <laughs> I mean, no error because I wouldn't be here, but um, <laughs> a lot of it came from the people that I encountered and learned a lot from people who are willing to help out and research and like I said learning the skill set through Mark and then through caving and climbing as well. With all those skills combined I'm able to go to a location and rig my own system based off of the environment and what is needed and the people involved. <laughs> so, so give us all an example of what some of those systems might look like. Say you're going to get some photography of climbing from above a sport route that's 80 feet long. So when it comes to climbing photography, I take two different approaches. Either I could hike up and rig a rope from a tree or rig my own anchor from a tree and wrap down. Or I could have a climber bring up a rope for me. So it really just depends on the climber itself and the situation if I can hike up, if I can't. But usually I would have the climber bring the rope up for me. Once I get to the anchor, they'll drop down a bite of rope, which is basically just dropping down like a bit of rope till yeah, it reaches like, like the ground. Like a slight loop. Yeah, yeah, like a slight loop. Then once it gets down to the ground, I, I connect a double figure eight on an alpine butterfly and they bring my rope back up. That way I rig the knot and all they have to do is clip it into the anchor with two carabiners that I placed on the rope. Then I'll just 
to send up that single static line. And then you'll be attached by senders, I'm assuming, yes. and then just make your way up and down <laughs> the rope. Just go up as and needed. down, up and down. You want to get great photographs, so you've got to think about all the techniques you'd normally think about, where the sun's located, what your light looks like, what your composition looks like, but then you also have to figure out how to physically get there on the rope and have the stamina to keep doing that. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot of it comes down to being fit and shape. Yeah, it comes down to scouting out the locations and figuring out where you're going to be and communication with your athletes. There's a lot that goes into my head before I actually set up a photo shoot. (laughs) So let's talk about life after school. So you took this class, you said for about two years, right? It was a Mm two-year program. Mostly finished it up. Mostly finished it. (laughs) And then what did you start doing from there? I hit the road and spent a lot of time traveling out of my Prius. Rest in peace. Yes. (laughs) Prius is gone now. I did not like winter. Yeah, I basically chased where opportunity hit itself. So if I get an invite somewhere like canyoneering in Oregon, I would shoot over there, take some photos, have fun in the community, and then go to the next opportunity. And I I went to a few trips last year, Grand Canyon expeditions um, for caving. And I went out east and climbing in Kentucky at Red River Gorge. So I was just basically chasing wherever the opportunities went or wherever I wanted to go photograph. Was it a situation also where, say, you'd go along with people and then maybe in that area you'd meet some other people you don't know who'd be like, oh, what are you doing? We notice you've got that camera and you're hanging over there. Oh, well, we're going to do this. Why don't you come along? We wouldn't mind somebody taking photos of us as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was in Indian Creek for Creeksgiving last year and we're sitting around a fire and Jason looks at me and he's like, hey, Tiffany. And this is the different Jason for me. This is a different Jason. <laughs> hey, Tiffany, do you want to shoot me on Moonlight Buttress in Zion? And I'm like, sure. And he's like, do you know what that is? I'm like, no, but we'll make it happen. And he's like, okay, it's a really tall climb. I'm like, okay, (laughs) we'll do it. Two days later, we went down to Zion and I rigged Moonline Buttress and shot them on that climb. What you're leaving out is, for those that don't know what Moonlight Buttress is, is it's a multi-pitch, kind of long route up the side of Angel's Landing, more or less, or at least it (laughs) tops out on Angel's Landing. How many pitches is it? 10 to 13. 10 to 13. So, so numerous pitches and what, a thousand feet? Feet, 1,400 yeah. feet, something like that. So that's a little more involved than showing up like we were talking about at an 80 foot uh, yeah. sport climb, hiking to the top and rigging a rope. So what did that look like? Actually, it wasn't too hard to rig because I just had to hike up Angel's Landing twice and find the anchor. And then basically the day before the climb, we just rigged four pitches from the top. And then when it came down to the day of the climbing, they went and started climbing and then I would hike back up Angel's Landing and and wrap down halfway down the wall and wait for them. So then you shot the last four pitches of yeah, the route, not yeah. the first pitches? Yeah, basically. So that way, when you think about climbing photography, you want to show um, credibility to the climb, right? So being able to show that height mm-hmm. was something that I was thinking about. So it wasn't really necessary to go any further down. And then um, showing the hardest pitches there, making it you know easier for success. So you don't want to tire yourself out too much either. So I'm cleaning rope as I go up as well. And as the climber goes up. And so did you rig the four pitches individually or did you just bring in a particularly long rope? I brought two 70 meter ropes. One was a dynamic rope and one was a static rope. And I did do a couple of rebelays so that way I would avoid sharp edges. Basically rig the four pitches with the two long ropes. So let's talk about the challenges <laughs> of shooting while attached to a rope by ascenders, right? Because the photo you might want might be five feet 
further to your left, you suddenly realize, or sure would be nice if I was a couple feet further away from this wall right yeah. now. So let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about the solutions you find when you realize oh, I don't quite have the composition I want, but I can't change it too easily right now. You kind of just have to go with the flow and get what's given to you. Because if you go in there expecting something, you're not going to get that result. So you just have to go in there, have fun, communicate with your climber, set yourself up as much as you can for success. So put yourself in the right position. Don't put your climber in direct sunlight. And don't put yourself behind the climber. Put yourself in front of the climber and make sure you bring the right lens. So there's a lot of variables that go into capturing the right shot. That just all comes with experience and trial and error. All right, so we've talked a fair amount about climbing photography, but that's not the only kind of photography you've been doing, as you've mentioned. You do yeah. canyon photography, you do cave photography. Let's talk a little bit about the canyon photography, and then let's talk about cave photography, which brings its own hurdles to deal yes, with. Yes, it does. <laughs> okay, so canyon photography. The art of canyoneering is basically rappelling down waterfalls in a canyon, in a mountain. There's a lot of water involved, so being able to keep the camera dry is really important. <laughs> so my go-to basically is take the camera, stick it into one of the thicker Sea to Summit dry bags, pad it with my approach clothes, because you'll generally be wearing a wetsuit once you enter the canyon, and then take it out whenever I can get to dry land, and that's if I'm not using my water housing which is something that I just started incorporating in canyoneering photography. How, how do you like the water housing? Because it can be a pain. It is a pain. It is. <laughs> it is. I found keeping it from fogging is a challenge, and I was licking the front of the port a lot <laughs> due to a friend's recommendation. Um, it's a great way to get Jardia also. <laughs> I'm resilient. I, I quite enjoyed it because I feel like... You, could get into the water and I don't have to worry about my, destroying my camera while I'm out in the canyon. And I also have the camera condom, so it's not as heavy as a general um, plastic housing would be. So it's a little bit more forgiving for those kind of environments and carrying in C-class canyons, which is flowing water canyons. Just recently used it in Oregon last year when I went out there in Parquet Canyon and I was hanging off a waterfall about 15 feet over the edge with my camera for the first time and it got some awesome shots out of it. So it's one of my favorite shots from last year. Are you rigging in the canyons also or do you just try to keep moving forward with the group? Like are you rigging separate lines specifically for photographing? I think it really just depends on the situation. Sometimes I'll rig separate lines, sometimes I'm able to go on the same line, but it just really depends on the actual spot and the team members that I'm with as well. And I don't always bring my camera in or don't always shoot mm -hmm. every drop. It's I like to combine working and photography right. at the same time. So you mentioned that you bring the Sea to Summit dry bag. Are you familiar with the watershed camera dry bags? Wait, the, the gray ones, right? With the, uh, the ones I have are orange. But they're they, orange. They're, they're pretty nice. I find them very useful, although I worry that when the day comes that they fail, I won't know until it destroys everything inside. But they're essentially these smaller dry bags that are shaped like a camera bag, and then on the the inside it has separate camera foam inserts so it is intended for camera gear oh so oh, i, I have to seen send these. that to you yeah. if you haven't seen them before i personally can vouch for them because that's what i use awesome when i shoot yeah, video and I stuff i would love in to see them yeah. <laughs> no i've always used the suit of summit ones and they haven't failed me yet so 
cross my fingers. <laughs> I actually took it down at the bottom of a cave system in Mexico. I took three. So I had three of them bagged up with my camera inside. Everyone else's dry bag system failed except for mine. That's frightening. Kind of, yeah, kind of frightening <laughs> a little bit. I didn't have insurance at the time, so. All right, let's talk about cave photography. Because yes. cave photography, tell us about all of the things that cave photography introduces that the other photography do not. So you're in a dark environment. <laughs> You need to bring your own flashes and transmitters and batteries and have a sturdy back for it because <laughs> you're carrying all that in there. So K-photography is probably the hardest to deal with out of all the other environments just because you're carrying a lot more weight on your back, including your personal gear and you have to be ready for it and you don't want to slow down the group so you got to be fit and you got to know what you're doing as well and it's just all around dirtier right it's dirty everything's it's dirty. dusty or dirty or muddy it's wet it's muddy you're going through tight spaces with your camera you don't want to beat up your bag either because you don't want to beat up your camera which is scary <laughs> so you're trying really hard to go through these environments without beating up your bag. But what helps also is learning commercial photography in school because I was able to learn studio lighting and I was able to incorporate that skill set into the cave environment. And so I would just set up my main light and all my ratios and it's been working out so far. How do you combat keeping your lenses clean? I bring a light towel and what I'll do is same thing, dry bag, Sea to Summit dry bag and take the camera out and I just set the camera on top of the dry bag so I'd make sure that I set myself up for as much success as I can and keep it clean. I don't baby my equipment so it does obviously get dirty but you can clean it after each time you go on a trip and try to maintain that and you'll eventually go through filters and because it'll get scratched. Usually I'll just bring like a light towel or rag to maintain that keep it simple. Yeah and when you're on the move in any of these environments and trying to capture actions as they happen you don't have the luxury that you would in a studio of constantly switching lenses and carrying a bunch of primes so that you can switch to this for your close-ups and switch to this for your wider shots so what lenses or lens do you tend to work with i judge it based off of the cave system so if i know it's going to be a big open space cave i'll take my 24 to 70 which is usually my go-to anyways 2.8 i'll usually bring about four 600 flashes and transmitters i'll probably have about anywhere between 45 to 50 batteries on me sometimes an insane amount <laughs> that, that's double a batteries oh, you so mean, the weight, you the mean weight it's actually not adds. car batteries <laughs> 45 car batteries i feel like i'm that strong i usually bring a lot of batteries with me. <laughs> so, so tell us about some of the types of photographs that you've gotten in these environments that stand out in your memory, like the, the photographs where you're like, this one was a shit ton of work, but in the end, it was worth it because I captured this moment. How about the only photograph from the bottom of Sistema Watla in Mexico? I'm the only photographer to ever bring a camera down to the very bottom of the cave system where we got trapped for seven days because of cave flush flooded and I have the only photograph from camp down where we got trapped. So tell us about that cave system. Tell us tell us the particulars that we need to know about it. Okay, so it's a canyon passage that runs about, we were about 700 meters deep 
below surface. It took us 12 hours to get down to the very bottom to camp. And that's with our rigging gear, our ropes, our camp gear. Once we were at the bottom, the cave system flooded the day after and we were trapped at the very bottom. <laughs> yeah, and, and what was the purpose of this cave expedition? Was this was mapping? so that we could map the, the bottom of the cave system and look at leads, which are sections of the system that could possibly open up to more areas of the cave that we could map. So were you there to do technical photography? or were you there to capture photographs of the expedition team or a mixture of both? Um, I was there just to document the trip as well as participate in the survey and mapping of the cave system below. So basically combining both work and photography. So you guys are down at the bottom. You've been going along, getting photographs of the team along the way. When did you realize that you were about to get trapped in there? We, we suspected that we were trapped after there's a waterfall next to our camp that had flash flooded. During that time, a wall of water had come down and swept Katie, one of the members, off her feet and pinned her against a rock. Okay, well that's not a good thing. No. <laughs> so we suspected that we were in trouble around that time and for the next couple of days we continued working and trying to get to the areas uh, to survey. Some areas we were able to get to, some we weren't because of the water were was high. When Katie decided that she was going to leave early to catch a bus to go home for work, she came back to camp to, t to notify the group that our passage was underwater. So then what happens at that moment when everybody realizes we have to stay here? And and you at this point don't really know how long you're going to have to stay, right? We kind of figured the, just based off of the waterfall that was next to camp, the water levels were going down. So we kind of figured that we just needed to wait until that was back to how it looked like before. And um, then we would attempt to go to leave again. So Katie did wait another 24 hours and then she was able to go through the passage, which was good news. And we went through a day after that because one of the members got sick down below. Was there a team on the surface? Was there any communication from where you were with the surface? There was a team on the surface, but there is no communication between us and the surface. One of the members from the surface tried to come down to bring us food the second day that we were at the bottom and um, he wasn't able to reach us because of that passage that was blocked. How many days of food did you have with you? About half of what we needed for a seven day trip down below. <laughs> we did ration on cliff bars and jerky. And <laughs> but you ran out of Doritos on day one? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, beggars can't be choosers down there. <laughs> you make it work. So you said you only had half as much food and water? When it comes to water, we could just pull from you were able to the waterfall. So we were able to pump from the waterfall. So what was most important you were able to get, thankfully, is yeah, water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were good on water. Uh, luckily, we don't have to carry our own water down into the cave system. It'd be really heavy. <laughs> so have you ever been in a cave where that's happened before? Where you have to bring your own water? Or where no, where, where you find out you're stuck and you can't get out. No, no, I've never been in that All situation All right, so tell before. us about that situation. That was also my very first camp trip. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. All right, let's hear the mix of emotions that you had when you started to realize what was going on. Just, you know, based off of being a cannoneer, I knew that the water levels were going to drop at some point. So mm -hmm. it's just a matter of when is it going to drop and what are we going to do, have to do to get out of the cave system. And 
At one point, I was told that I might have to do to one to two inches of air in order to get through the other side, and I wasn't sure if I was qualified enough to do that, because <laughs> that, that requires you taking off your helmet and feeling your way through a dark passage that you cannot see with mm -hmm. one to two inches of air in front of you while you're swimming in a tight space for 50 feet. So. It sounds nice up here on the surface, but when oh, you're down no, below, no, yeah, right. and, <laughs> yeah, and, and your life depends on it. And, it, and it's, it's not like where if you were learning this skill in a controlled environment, you know, like, oh, if, if I get scared, I can back out because it's not real. This would be... Absolutely. Wait, this Absolutely. would be reality. Yeah. And there were um, heavier rains at that time, so just not knowing what the weather looks like and if it was going to flood again as we're going out was something that... I was thinking as well as like what what are we actually facing and how how much of a risk is this right now so you cried a lot <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> and when the water did recede on a scale of one to ten how relieved were you oh i was relieved <laughs> <laughs> so. i mean i knew it was going to recede i just uh, didn't know when it was going to recede right. um i'm just glad that it i didn't have to do the one two inches of air yet <laughs> have you ever tried that have you tried that in any sort of scenario not yet not yet that's something that i will be learning so that way if i ever am put in that situation then i'll be ready to go mm -hmm. so that's just something that every caver should learn <laughs> so so we started this conversation talking about a photograph that comes to mind and that brought up this story and you say you have the only photograph from camp down there so what is that photograph what's it look like it looks like a lot of gear getting ready to rig and uh, three team members looking at a map, a survey map from the previous year, looking for the leads. And yeah, they're all sitting at camp. And so that's the kind of photograph that you can't easily recreate on the surface. So what other sorts of photographs have you gotten from doing this adventure photography that stand out and you think, this is why I do it, because I can capture this moment that otherwise people can't experience that don't do these activities? I'm really starting to enjoy the most out of adventure photography is capturing people. There's one thing about going from community to community is that you run into people who have these amazing stories and they come from these amazing backgrounds and being able to capture those people I think mean a lot and I'm becoming fascinated with them as well and wanting to share their stories. So there's a lot that I appreciate. I appreciate being able to be the first person to be there to document expeditions, but I also appreciate being able to capture the people that I encounter and the communities. I like what you're saying about capturing people's personalities and kind of getting these portraits of people. It is kind of easy to, to look at a picture and be like, oh, there's some person climbing something that I could never climb. That's cool. But then there's still that separation, right, between yourself and the person in the photograph. Whereas what you're talking about, which is kind of capturing the personality of a person, well, then maybe they see a piece of themselves in there or just something that reminds them of someone they know and suddenly this activity that seems foreign to them is a thing they can identify with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I guess I'm I'm the perfect example that like anybody can go out there and do these activities. Anybody could be inspired and I get people who contact me all the time who are inspired by my photographs and want to know more, want to know how they can get connected, how they can reach these communities and get out there and I think people are starting to realize that like they can also participate in these sports as well. What do you want people to take away from your photographs when they see your work? I mean is it what you just talked about or is it something else or a mixture of things? It's kind of a mixture of things. I, I really do want to inspire people with my photography but I also 
want to be an influencer, help them get connected, and also give back to the communities. I want to help raise money for expeditions and help bring funding in that way as well. So however I could make a difference with my photography, then I'm happy. You mentioned that your Prius has died. It has. And that you have <laughs> replaced it with this van you showed me that is enormously tall that you intend to move into. So tell us about these plans. Tell us what you're doing with this van and what this van this is. Van, I don't know if there's plans yet. Well, so I hope right. there's some sort of plan because you already built a bunch of shelves and <laughs> I stuff did. in there. I did. I did. Well, I am definitely moving into the van. That's going to be mi casa. So the plan is to finish the van, all the woodwork, and then move in and continue doing adventure photography and working remotely and hopefully figuring out the business side of it, which is something that I have been neglecting over the years. <laughs> you know, it's easy to build a portfolio. <laughs> so the plan is sincerely move into this van, live in the van, and the reasoning being that then you can go wherever you need to go for your photographs and live anywhere that you need to go, right? Absolutely. Do you have specific goals in mind or jobs ahead that you specifically are preparing that van for? Not specifically, no. I'm more just go with the wind. Wherever it takes me. So, so where did it just take you? Because I know you said you just came back from being on the road for a couple of weeks in this van that's not quite finished yet. I did. Yet. I did. I, yeah, it, that was scary. I was at Cave Convention, gave about 50 van tours a day because <laughs> everyone was inspired by it. So that's basically an annual convention where cavers come together and we party and we talk about trips and we give out rewards and that kind of stuff. And we just all, the community just gets together. And I was there for about a week in Montana and doing some rock climbing and then I went out to the Tetons for another week and enjoyed the van and some climbing and hiking and the community out there. So what was your verdict on your van? Do you like it? You think it's going to work or you think you need to make some changes to make it workable? I love the van. I just need to seal the woods so that way it can get dirty. <laughs> Are you afraid the interior is going to rot otherwise? <laughs> yeah, it's raw wood right now. So tell us about this van. It's a big Ram something or another and tell us what it looks like on the inside. Oh, it's a big Dodge Ram Promaster 1500. 2014. That means it's like 12 feet tall. It is. <laughs> if you're a tall person, you can stand up in it. I'm short. So it's important you get the tallest van possible. <laughs> yeah, well, you never know. I might start dating at some point. Yeah, it's got cabinets. It's got my gear wardrobe, which is important because I wanted to fit all my gear in there. And a little kitchen and a couch that converts into a bed. And some tiny little fire-burning stove. I have a tiny wood fire-burning <laughs> stove that we lit last night, and it was amazing. <laughs> and, a, and a hangboard. Yes, and a hangboard. <laughs> I do. <laughs> very unique. So tell us all those things that everyone that moves into a vehicle has to answer. How do you clean yourself? Mm. How do you go to the bathroom? Are you doing the gym membership thing to cover all that? Or, <laughs> Actually, or carrying a shower with you? What are you doing? I mean, I don't do the gym membership. I do seek out showers at truck stops. Climbing places usually will have showers. So if you go to like a climbing gym, you can shower there. Or there's places like out in Moab, Oh, I forgot what the place is called. Something lizard. Green lizard. Something where you can shower for $3. So you just have to find where the best deals are to shower. But you yeah, kind of just have to get used to it. Watch out for Flying Jay because they'll charge you 12 bucks for a shower. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't mind the good old natural river showers <laughs> too and lakes. Like <laughs> You just 
gotta get used to being stinky all the time. You know, like it's a sacrifice, but it's a good sacrifice because you're outside in nature. You open your doors, and the mountains are right there. Are you doing the wet wipes? Yeah. Yeah, you bring lots of those. Anybody that doesn't know, you bring wet wipes, and it's almost like you get a bath. It, it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I definitely have a lot of those in the van. So tell us a little bit about your photography thus far, what you have done with your photographs, where people have been able to see them. You said you've you got to start working on the business, so what's I that am, look like? I am working on the business, a lot of research at the moment, and right now I'm working on some women blogs, writing, incorporating writing into my photography, and I just got published in NSS Magazine, which is great, and I wrote an article for Western Magazine. There's, there's just a lot of like little things all over the place. My website, of course, uh, you can find my photos there, and I'll be doing talks at REI as oh, well. really? Nice. Yeah, yeah. So are those going to be photography-based talks? or Yeah, like, yeah. Basically, be? I'm going to talk a little bit about the experience in Mexico, and then me as an artist, and my story, and inspiring other people as well. It's going to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's the plan now? What, what, do you, what do you hope for the future? What are you shooting for? I know you go where the wind takes you. I do. You I do. Put this van together to replace your dead Prius. I did. That died in the winter. And clearly you have goals you would like to attain. So tell us what you want from Tiffany Nardico photography for the next few years. At the moment... Growing as an athlete is huge for me. Being able to always grow in that industry and do bigger and better things so that I can continue bringing new content in. But I'll probably end up out east at some point to do some climbing and, and caving and there's a lot more out there and there's Red River Gorge which I fell in love with and yeah wherever the opportunities really present itself I guess. Are there any sports you're not photographing yet that you're interested in photographing? Actually I cut myself off <laughs> <laughs> so I'm huge on, on also being an athlete in the sports that I photograph. I've already started shooting highlining because I fell in love with the community and kind of stumbled across that along with my travels and I'm not actually a highliner so that's the only sport that I really photograph that I actually don't do but I cut my myself off at canyoning, caving, climbing, highlining, and ice climbing. So if somebody calls you up right now and they're like, hey, we've got this great kayaking trip. You want to come photograph these kayakers? You're going to say no. I mean, if they want to pay me for it, <laughs> then I wouldn't say no. <laughs> when it comes to jobs, it's different. You got to go where you where you can go. Where my heart is, where my work is, is canyoning, caving, and climbing. And if people want to see your photographs, where should they do that? At your website, you said? Yes. Yeah. TiffanyNardicoPhotography.com. And then you mentioned that you got published someplace too, so what issues should they be looking for of which publications? NSS Magazine, um, the August issue that just came out. Of 2018? Yes. In case people don't know what year it is. <laughs> so you mentioned that you like to be an athlete in these activities as well as photograph them, which is important, right? Because you need to be in the same kind of shape as the people you're mm -hmm. photographing so you can keep up with them and get ahead of them and everything else. But you're also going to be living in a van. So other than just doing those activities, how are you maintaining your fitness and, and keeping yourself capable? That's the beauty of living in a van is that outside is, you know, is your backyard. So the mountains are your backyard. So I can just go hiking and a lot of like elevation hiking helps with carrying heavy packs and just continuing to go on trips, continuing to climb rope, continuing to shoot. That helps as well. Last year probably was 
I got the strongest out of all the years because I was just traveling nonstop and able to carry an insane amount of weight without it even phasing me. So really just um, continuing being outside. So what jobs do you want? What do you want people listening to this that say, oh, I need to hire somebody to do some photographs? What kind of jobs should they be offering you? Are you asking me my dream job? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> your dream job or just those, the ones that you want. I mean, I'm really open to sh- anywhere I can help somebody. Anywhere that my services can help somebody, I'm open to. But my dream job is to document expeditions and be there to be part of history and to be the one who takes photos of that, who shares that moment and tells the story. That would be my dream job. So you like expeditions. I do. Where you can document what's happening. Absolutely. And people can get a glimpse into something that otherwise they'd only hear about through writing or or some other telling stories. So what I usually do at the end of the show, other than tell people where to find your work, which we've mentioned your website, but is there anywhere else you want people to go? Do you do the Instagram thing? Do you do the Twitter thing? Facebook? Are there places where people should go and look for your stuff and follow along with your work? Yeah, I do have social media as well. And if you go onto my website, you can find all the links to my social media, which is Tiffany Nardico Photography. Make it nice and simple. I do have Facebook, Instagram. I started Twitter, but I have not posted a lot on there. Yeah, I still don't really understand the I'm not social media savvy, but I am getting better at it. I generally post on Instagram, so you'll find a lot of my work there as well. And so usually here at the end of the show, I ask people if there's something we haven't talked about they want to talk about, or if there's a final thought they want to leave people with, then now's your opportunity to do that. Don't be afraid to go outside and do what you love to do. That's that's why I did this. I decided that I wanted to live a certain way and I wanted to be a part of something great and make history. Don't be afraid to follow the path that your heart tells you to do. That's right. So if you're inside Forever 21 right now, <laughs> staring at some dresses and you think maybe this shouldn't be my life, well you can be I like still Tiffany. Have those dresses. <laughs> <laughs> you can be like Tiffany and run away from the mannequins and and <laughs> Go take a photography class or a base jump or something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, mannequins can be terrifying. (laughs) All right, so with that final thought, telling people not to be scared, I think we can go ahead and finish this up. So, thank you for coming over here to the park and showing me your 12 foot tall van. It's sharp people friendly. <laughs> you mean tall people friendly? It is, but it, especially short people friendly. <laughs> Isn't a short van short people friendly also? That's true. I could fit anywhere. I fit in my Prius. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming out here. And that's our show. And we all know what time it is now. It's time to run to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this, episode 78, with Tiffany Nardico. There you will find links to everything we talked about in today's show and a sampling of many of Tiffany's photographs. There are some really nice ones in there. Head to the website, check those out. And after you do that, how about dropping us a line here at the show? Let us know what you like, don't like, what you'd like to hear in the future. There are a number of ways to get in touch with us. Send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com, or if you'd prefer, leave us a voicemail or text at 818-925-0106. And if you would like to do me a big favor and help make this show more successful, then run to your podcast purveyor of choice, subscribe to the show, 
rate it, review it, share it with someone. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by me, your host, Jason Milligan. Additional help came from Griffin Davis, and as always, it was brought to you by ButcherBird Studios. Next time on the show, come back February 16th for Michael Kelly. He is an outdoor school instructor, surf and sup coach, sup racer, cyclist, scoutmaster, and father of two boys. Come back February 16th, Michael Kelly. See you then.